0: That was really good. Uh, well, I want to start with a question. Which is more powerful? Ooh, was that me? The electric guitar? All right. Which is more powerful, a horse or a car? All right, we got different answers. How many of you say car? There's a couple hands up. How many of you say horse? Quite a few more hands. Okay, that's a, that's backwards to what I thought. How many of you didn't put your hand up because you suspect pastors always ask trick, trick questions? <laughs> um, I I didn't expect more horses and cars. Most people I've asked this question to say car. That's the kind of immediate thought that enters my mind anyway when I think through those two categories. We even measure the power of a car. What's the measurement we use? We use horsepower. And I've never driven a car with less than one horsepower. They always have more, um, more power, right? And there are some very specific ways in which a car is more powerful than a horse. Which one goes faster? Which one can go farther? Ah, see, there we go. Some of you, it's like, well, what do you mean, right? Yeah, without what? Without gas, without grass, without, like, you got to pick your thing. Um, If you run one into the other, which one's going to (laughs) win? They're both going to be pretty banged up, aren't they? Um, Some of you said the horse is going to be worse damage, but if you've ever seen a car after it runs into a deer or something, you know that it's not pretty. So how do you actually answer a question like this? There's not really a straightforward way to do this, right? For specific purposes, I would much rather have a car than a horse, but a car can't have babies. If a car gets scraped and you leave it alone, it won't get better, right, whereas a horse can heal. Um, you know, if you fall asleep at the wheel and you fall asleep at the reins, two very different things are going to happen. The horse might still get you home. <laughs> the car probably won't, not unless you fell asleep at the wheel in your driveway, Um <laughs> Some of the powers the horse has we may not like very much, right? Your car isn't going to decide that today it doesn't want to go for a ride, but your horse could. Your horse could decide it's not very interested. Often, when we talk about power, we don't actually sink into it enough to realize what we're talking about. In an abstract way, we would like a lot of us, I think, would immediately say cars have more like kind of raw power, but only because we like what they do, not because if you were to lay out all of the capabilities of both a car and a horse, the car would clearly be the winner. It wouldn't, right? And you guys are smart enough that you all knew that as soon as I asked, which is awesome. Um, A lot of times when we talk about power, what we really mean is which one is more powerful for me, right, which one gives me more power or gives me the power to do the things that I want, And those two, the person and the purpose, are always going to be behind our answers to power questions. Who is the person at the center of the power question when you ask what's more powerful? Because if it's yourself, then I think it is fairly clear that a car is more powerful than a horse, right? Because a car just does what you tell it to within the, the design parameters of that particular vehicle. And then purpose is another one. It depends on what your goals are. If you're trying to get a family of 6 from here to Vancouver, you want a van. Yeah. <laughs> one horse is not going to help you very much. And you know, even if it could even if you are going to make it pull your wagon from here to there, that's a long road you got ahead of you, right? The purpose determines the answer in that question. On the other hand, if you want something closer to a relationship and you want the joy of going through fields and hills and valleys and this kind of thing, you definitely want a, a horse. Your car isn't going to get out of that kind of journey. Right? Drive it up and down a couple hills and into a valley and that's it. You're going to leave it there. Um, so your purpose and your person matter. And one of the problems when we come to talking about power, and today we're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, is that if we don't start thinking through those things, we end up with a really skewed view of power. And that's how power becomes, as it does in our culture, an idol. It becomes one of those things we worship. We long for power. But what we really mean when we say that is the, we long for the ability to for, so if I'm talking about myself, I long for the ability so that I can do what I want to do whenever I want to do it without anybody getting in my way. Right? That's what we actually want. We want power for me. And we look at other people who have that ability, who can do whatever they want, whenever they want. Typically right now that has a lot to do with money, although that hasn't always been the case. Money hasn't always been the only key measure of power, but in our culture it is. And we we envy those people, or we admire those people, or we want to have more of what those people have. Um, But when we abstract power and make it into an idol like that, we actually leave aside the questions of person and purpose. And as soon as you've left aside the questions of person and purpose within the context of power, you have a recipe for for death, which is always the case with idols. It's always the case that when you elevate something out of its proper place and you put it over you when it should be under you and you use that as its own kind of measurement, that it will squash and destroy what is underneath it. There's a right place for power. We all have power. We just usually think about it in the wrong ways. So let me give you another example. Um, Military power, for example. We look at the ability of countries and people to inflict damage. And we use this internationally, among countries and on the global scale, as one of our key measurements of power. But in a lot of ways, And and I don't mean this to sound too harsh or brutal or dark, but physically speaking, killing is quite easy. It doesn't actually require a lot of anything to kill, right? Given the right tool, even just a knife in the right place, a child can end a life. Physically speaking, let me be very clear, right? Morally, personally, um, having the desire, the will, et cetera, et cetera. That's all much harder and thank the Lord that that is the case. But you go back to talking about a car. Every day we drive around in vehicles which we could use to hurt people quite easily, right? And we don't, and we shouldn't, but it's really not that difficult from a certain perspective. And yet we use that as a measure of like a nation's power. You take something else from a personal scale, you talk about convincing someone that you love them, and that can be much, much harder than causing physical pain. It's easy to cause physical pain, you don't have to know someone. I was in Toronto, we, I met Christina in Toronto, we were on a project there for one summer and I was walking down the street, we lived downtown in a university residence, and I was walking down the street one day and this guy punched me. I'm not even joking, I didn't know him, never seen him before or since. Like I, had no, I have no idea why, like he just walked down the street and punched. And I moved my head and he hit my shoulder. And it was pretty, like, it was a hard punch. I was bruised. That's how easy it is to cause physical pain. Now, how, how hard would it be for that man to convince me that he loved me before or after he'd hit me, right? Like, that takes time, that takes commitment. It ta- it's a two way, right? You can do a bunch of things that, and this is a struggle in lots of marriages where you, you do things that you think I'm doing this because I love you, and the other person is like, what? That's not what that communicates at all. Right, And it, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of thought. And yet, how often do we use our ability to communicate love as a measure of power? Almost never. But the power to show someone you love them is actually a difficult power to have and a much more important one than the power to cause pain. And so all of this is just a way of getting us into the conversation, Of helping us understand that when we talk about the power of God, we're talking about a lot of different things at once. Because when it comes to God, God is all powerful. We use a word for that; it's omnipotent. Omni is all, like omnidirectional, all and potent. I mean, we know what that means. That that word of capability, of potential, of possibility with God and and Jesus says this: with nothing is impossible with God. All things are possible with God. The prophet Jeremiah passes on the words of God, Behold, I am the Lord. Is anything too hard for me? Right? Repeatedly, the Scriptures witness to this fact. God is all-powerful. And yet, when we talk about the power of God, most of the time we need to talk about story. Because you can't separate the power of God from His person and His purposes with a being for whom all things are possible power is not about what you can do but what it's what it's about what you actually do and the scriptures know this there is this handful of times Jesus the prophet Jeremiah the angel speaking to Mary Paul a couple times will say straight out all things are possible for God, nothing is impossible for God, nothing is too hard for God, because this is true. But for every one of those, there is at least a hundred times in Scripture where somebody says, the Lord is powerful, and then immediately tells you what He did, what He actually did, what the actual story was. And so we can turn to a number of places in Scripture. Creation is a really common theme when speaking of the power of God. Psalm 147, he determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And the whole psalm is about creation. Like who put the stars in place? Who tells the sea, stop here, you go no further, right? The story of creation is often in the background. Another great example of this um, from Job God stretches out the northern sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps the rain in his thick clouds, and the clouds don't burst with the weight. He covers the face of the moon, shrouding it with cloud. He created the horizon when he separated the waters. He sets the boundary between day and night. The foundations of the heaven tremble, they shudder at his rebuke. By his power, the sea grows calm. By his skill, he crushed the great sea monster. His spirit has made the heavens beautiful, and his power has pierced the gliding serpent. These are just the beginnings of all that he does, merely a whisper of his power. Who then can comprehend the thunder of his power? There's this great set of imagery about the power of God displayed in creation bringing peace and stillness to the storm, bringing beauty to the heavens. And that image at the end, this is just a whisper. Who could stand the thunder of God's power, right? Like, it's incredible. Another, another story that's often picked up when speaking of the power of God is the story of redemption. Redemption. So in the Old Testament, this is all about the Exodus. It's all about God saving his people from the Egyptians. And the psalmist will talk about God's mighty hand and his outstretched arm by which he destroyed the Egyptians and parted the Red Sea and led them through the desert. In Deuteronomy, um, God is giving them the law and tells them this is what you have to tell to your children and to your children's children. You have to declare these truths to them. My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of that soil to you, O Lord, that you have given to me. Right? And it's this, again, it's this story. Because what we talk about when we talk about the power of God is we talk about the works of God and how he has revealed himself through them. And so, ever after the Exodus, at the start of all the key moments in the law and in the worship, It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. That story gets embedded into their view of who God is, of his power, of his character, of his purposes and his person. And so today as we talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, I want us to have these kinds of things in mind. The Holy Spirit, one of the members of the Trinity, God himself, he's all-powerful. There's nothing impossible for him. And yet we need to look at the story, not of what he could do, but of what he did do. And so let's turn again to Acts chapter 2. We were in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 last week. We're in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 this week as well. If you've got a Bible or a phone, you can pull it out. It will be on the screen behind us. And I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for your word and for your power. And I thank you for the story that you have for us from Genesis to Revelation and on into the life of the church and into the life of Timbers. Thank you for your goodness and your presence and your grace. Speak to us this morning, Lord. Reveal to us your power and your person and your purposes. Amen. You may be seated. So last week, in talking about the person of the Holy Spirit, I also talked about a number of the ways in which we see the Spirit at work. Gifting creativity, revealing God and teaching, gifting new life, walking with God's people to create God's people and enable them to do God's work. These are some of the things we talked about. All of those things play into the power of the Holy Spirit, how we see Him at work. But one of the really cool things you can do, we just read this day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes on them like tongues of fire, and they start speaking in tongues and preaching the gospel and declaring the wonders of God. And if you were to keep reading in Acts chapter 2, you'd read Peter's sermon. And at the conclusion of Peter's sermon, 3,000 are added to their number. And the church, in a very real sense, is born on that day. And so there's all this stuff going on. And we can tell that story in light of the story is told in Genesis. So I want to take a step back for a minute and go back to Genesis. Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth, and it's good. And he creates people, and they're very good. And he gives them purpose and calls them stewards of the earth and wants them to walk with him. And then you get to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, things start to go wrong, right? Um, Adam and Eve have been told that they can eat out of any fruit in the tree except for the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent comes and they give in to temptation and they walk in disobedience and they eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11 is a string of stories that show us the effects of that choice. So they've eaten from the fruit and God comes looking for them and they're hiding and they're covering themselves and they're blaming Right? You get this great moment of passing the buck. Adam, what have you done? Well, this woman that you gave me, right? First man, he's already got that line down. This woman that you gave me, she made me eat the fruit, right? We're, we're good at excuses. Eve's no better, though. She says, it was the serpent. He deceived me and made me eat. And neither one of them is ready to take responsibility for their actions, and they all fall under judgment. They're, they're removed from the garden, from walking in the full presence of God. Life is made more painful and more difficult, and death enters the world as a result of their actions. They leave the garden and they start having children, and in the next generation we see that sin is still very present, as Cain kills his brother Abel over the favor of God on their offering. And it just gets worse from there, right? You read a little bit further on, and God's looking down on his creation and the hearts and minds of all of the people are turned to evil. And and only one man walks with the Lord, Noah. And you get the story of the flood and the kind of the, the restart, this wiping out of everyone except for Noah and his family. Um, and and after that sin is still present. The next big story you get is the story of the Tower of Babel. The people have gathered together, and they've decided that they are going to make a name for themselves, and they're going to be like God, exactly the same temptation that Adam and Eve gave into with the serpent. Now they're trying to do it by building a tower to the heavens, and and God comes down and confuses their language and scatters them across the earth. And then in Genesis 11, you begin to see the story of redemption, because in answer, to Babel. And there's an answer to each of these things, by the way. They get kicked out of the garden, but God also clothes them and promises them that there will be more hope in the future. Right? You get the story of Cain and Abel, but even Cain still gets to continue with his life, though he kills his brother. He's both cursed and protected by the judgment of God after this, and there's a way forward for, the, for humanity. After the flood, Noah is saved. Not everybody is wiped out. After the Tower of Babel, you're looking for the hope. You're looking for God to step in in some way, and what you get is Abraham. God steps down to Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing, and many nations will be blessed through you. And you begin this journey, but it's, it's like everyone since Genesis 3. God steps in, but sin is still present, and Israel ends up enslaved in Egypt. And then God comes and rescues them. Right? I'm telling you the big story here. God comes and rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt. He takes them through the Red Sea and through the desert and into the promised land, and he gifts them this land flowing with milk and honey. And sin is still present, right? And they're they're worshipping idols and they're they're all these different things along the way that I could list. They want a king instead of having God as a king, and God gives them a king, and the first king is awful, and then David comes along, and and even he's not perfect, but he does okay, and then after that, you get all these mixed kings, and the, the kingdom divides, and there's more idol worship, and they end up carried into exile, right? And in a very real way, they're back where they started, scattered across the world, still enslaved, still imprisoned, still living, both in real subjugation to... It's not real, like the other one's false, but both in political subjugation to another nation, but also real subjugation to sin and death. And that's the story up until Jesus comes. And Jesus comes on the scene, and, and God is now bringing to a point the whole story before. Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, is going to be the one through whom all the nations are blessed. And he doesn't start with the political And he doesn't start with the national, and he doesn't start with those kinds of power. What we see in the life of Jesus is the power of the cross. And he dies to set God's people, which is not just the Israelites, but all of God's children, free from sin and death. And opens the way to reconciliation with God, which is what we have needed since that moment in the garden when fellowship with God was broken. Now, it's into this story that the Holy Spirit comes. And what's really neat about Acts 2 and what follows is that you get to watch all of those things that have gone on in the story up to the time of Jesus be reversed. So Jesus dies on the cross to set us free from sin and death. But what actually gives us the power to live the life that God has called us to Is the Holy Spirit who comes and lives inside of us. The way is opened by Jesus on the cross, but he says in John, right, you need me to go to the Father so that I can send you the advocate who will come and live in you and teach you and guide you and lead you in doing all of these things, right? So it's not like the Holy Spirit is better than Jesus. God is always working together. He's one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? But in our lives, The Holy Spirit is the one who allows us to appropriate the victory of Christ and begin, begin to live it out. It's always the beginning because right now we have the first fruits of the kingdom of God, the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. None of us will be sinless this side of the return of Jesus. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be enabled to move towards the kingdom of God and to live more into that. So you get that first set of reversals. The Holy Spirit is God in us, right? So you get fellowship with God in a deeper, more intimate, and more real way than ever before. Okay, so we're free from the slavery of sin and death. You take a step back from that. What's the step before that, before the whole issue of slavery? is the issue of Babel. And in, in the Tower of Babel, the curse and the judgment that we fall under is the confusion of our tongue, right? It's the, the, the making of many languages so they couldn't communicate and they're scattered across the world. And what do we see in Acts chapter 2? The presence of the Spirit comes and the disciples start to speak in all of the tongues of the people present. In the power of the Spirit, Babel is reversed. Again, not permanently, right? It's the first fruits. But we see that same thing. The story, as it's been so far, is picked up here, and we begin to see those things rolled back. How else does the Scripture talk about the Spirit? The Spirit is the one who writes the law of God in our hearts, so that our hearts, unlike the people in the day of Noah, are not turned away from God and towards evil. But the Holy Spirit comes to turn our hearts back to God and towards good. In this language, again, Jesus talks in this way, Paul talks in this way about the Holy Spirit. We see it in Peter's sermon, right? He preaches to them about what has happened to Jesus and about how he was crucified, and we read in verse 37 that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. These are the, This is the same crowd that crucified him, that were so easily and quickly turned away from God, and towards evil. And here Peter preaches in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and they're cut to the heart, and they say, what do we do? Because the Spirit is at work in this crowd, turning their hearts back to God and back to good. And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? So the the sin and judgment of Noah's day is being reversed even in this sermon. You you take another step back, you get to Cain and Abel, right? And the enmity between brothers, the hatred between human beings. And what does Paul talk about? He talks about the fellowship of the Spirit. And if you were to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, you would read Paul talking about the great work of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and then immediately afterwards the great work of Jesus for the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles. And it takes all of like two chapters before the church in Jerusalem has enough multiculturalism that there's a fight breaking out about which widows are getting the right amount of food right? The Jewish widows. are the, Now, the fight isn't a good thing, but it's human and it's normal. I'm bringing up that point to say that from the beginning of the church, we see that reconciliation beginning to happen. We see people beginning to be brought together who had been separated by race and by culture and by prejudice in the work of the Holy Spirit. And that sin and judgment that you see in Cain and Abel is reversed. And then I already mentioned that the Holy Spirit is God in us and that fellowship is restored. And that's the big problem that is faced in Genesis chapter 3, when we're removed from the garden due to our sin. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we are brought back. There's a reason that we are called the temple of God, because we are the place where the presence of God dwells. And scripturally, garden imagery and temple imagery are always really close together. You go read one of those sections in the Old Testament that you usually skip where they're describing the building of the temple and all the decorations and all the measurements and all that stuff, right? It is a little bit boring. I get why we skip that stuff when we read there. But you actually read it and try to imagine it. You think about the decorations. Um, You know, there's leaves, like gold inlaid leaves on all the pillars, right? And different plants and stuff portrayed all over the place. There's a reason for that. It's because the temple and the garden go close together. I remember the first time I really paid attention to reading that with an imagination, because I have a terrible imagination, and I don't automatically picture things. But Christina and I were reading that together, and she's, like, very visual. And um, and she, she we, we read some of it, and we stopped, and Christina's like, it sounds like a Vegas casino. <laughs> Just the way that it's gold and silver and bright colors and all these leaves and stuff. And I was like, yeah, you're right. But then I actually started to think about it further. It's like it's not, I mean, Vegas casinos are a pale image of the presence and temple of God. And we, as the people of God who have the Holy Spirit in us, are in a different kind of way. We are the temple and the garden of God, the place where he dwells. And so if you're going to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, what we see is that the Holy Spirit comes in power to to remove the effects of sin and death, to, to roll back all of those things that have come out of the curse and thus set us free, truly free, free to walk with the Lord, free to know and pass on His love free to do his mission and to be his people. The Holy Spirit, I don't think we ever see him working alone. He comes upon people, right? He works alongside of God the Father and God the Son. That's how the Holy Spirit works. And one of the things I want to say and talk about this morning is our place in this. We have been promised the Holy Spirit. And we, who are believers, have the Holy Spirit in us. And we are called to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And Paul can say as he writes about the gifts, and we're not going to get into the specific spiritual gifts today, but Paul can say as he writes about the spiritual gifts, eagerly desire the greater gifts. We are supposed to long to walk with the Holy Spirit. To see his power at work among us. Like, we should want that. We should desire that. But we're going to run into trouble real quickly if, when we talk about wanting to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're thinking about power from a worldly perspective. Right? You have to keep it connected to the person and purposes of God, you can't take those apart. I love thinking about the disciples. Jesus has before this story in Pentecost, given them authority and power, right? And if you read John, he tells them already then that they have the Holy Spirit, okay? So we're not talking about like in Pentecost, this is their first time with that experience. Um, He sends them out on the mission. He says, go cast out demons and heal the sick and preach the gospel. Like, you have my authority and you have my power. And then we watch the disciples and they're a little bit like seven-year-old boys, because they they come back and they're like, Woo, the demons all listened. And Jesus is like, it's actually more important that you know God. <laughs> and then and then they start saying, like, who's the coolest? Like, which one of us is the greatest? Which one of us is gonna sit at his right hand and at his left? And he's like, Guys, you don't understand. Greatness doesn't come in that kind of position, it comes in service. And then they see someone else preaching the gospel and they're like, Jesus, that's our gig. You you can't let him do that, right? And and Jesus is like no, like he's speaking the truth. It's good, right? They're focused on themselves. My favorite one is when they go to I forget which town it is, and the town doesn't listen. And they're like, Jesus, should we call? Should we call down fire from heaven? Should we smite them? Like they actually ask Jesus this, and and you you get this impression like they're just enamored with this kind of like, oh, we're the guys, right? Like, we're the men, we're strong, and we're gonna show everybody, and it's all about us, and we're gonna be on top. And it's very easy to have that kind of attitude, and every single time Jesus rebukes them and teaches them the opposite. But if we're honest, we can all fall into that trap where we want the power of the Holy Spirit because we want everyone to know how awesome we are, right? And we want to be on top. And we want to be number one. And, and we want to show the world. And, some, and we, can, we can cloak this in holiness, right? Like, I'm going to show the world how mighty my God is. Look, Jesus came and died. He says, I could call down legions of angels from heaven. But he doesn't do it. Right? That's not how he uses his power. Yes, there are moments in Scripture where God comes down with fire. But far, far more often, than the power to destroy, which God has in abundance. God reveals his power in the power to love, which is much more difficult and requires, given the example of Jesus, we can say it absolutely requires humbling ourselves, lowering ourselves, being willing not to be on the top, but to be on the bottom. And that's where we see the power of the Holy Spirit at work his power is made perfect in our weakness. And this was true, not just of Paul or of all of us, but of Jesus himself. That the power of God is most clearly displayed through God incarnate. Jesus become human, giving up the powers of God and living a life of obedience, even unto death on the cross. So if and I hope you're with me in this, if you long to see the power of the Holy Spirit and you long to walk in his strength and in his ways and to see him doing things that only he can do, and that's always my dream for church. That's my dream for Timbers. I want to see things happen here that we can point at and we can say only God could have done that, right? That's what I would love to see, and I, and I think we do see that, but to see that, we've got to get out of the way Right? We've got to be willing to be vessels of clay, weak and broken and suffering. Stephen, you keep reading in Acts, has the power of the Holy Spirit come upon him, and we're told that he performs great wonders and miracles right before he's seized and stoned to death. Right? We don't get to decide how our stories end but we do get to decide who we walk with along the way. And when we talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, we're talking about his person and his purposes. And inasmuch as we can align ourselves with those things, God loves to walk with us. He longs to walk with us. He longs to show us who he is and to work in his power through us, through our church, in this community, and in this city. So I would encourage you to long for those things. But I would also urge you not to follow in the footsteps of the disciples who think that power is about getting on top. The power of God is about bringing life and showing his love, reversing the curse so that the story can be different. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for this story from Genesis to now. And I thank you for your spirit who shows us the way. And I thank you that you are a God of power who uses your power in love. May we be a people who do the same, who take whatever power you've given us, Lord, and we all have some, and we bend it towards your purposes in light of your person to love your world and to speak your gospel and your truth. Give us the strength for that, God. In your name we pray, amen.